weird, obscure, impossibly unsafe. What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? Come on, you gotta do it. You gotta do it. What's up? What's up? So anyways, what's up? Uh, is this the bit you said you planned? Yeah, that was the entire bit. <laughs> yeah, he's been like talking about it for the past two days. I, I feel like know. we this we've already even done this. This is no, we did it. New, we did right? it on a phone call one time. We didn't do it on the show. Oh, yeah. It's a new well. Anyways, one. what is this? A Bud Light commercial? <laughs> <laughs> Our lives are just one perpetual Bud Light commercial. Yeah. Huh. Anyways, um, very patriotic sometimes. <laughs> they have patriotic bus- Bud Light commercials. And those frogs. <laughs> the Bud Weiser. You remember those? Oh, no, I don't. Yes, I do. Yeah. Anyways, um, so I submitted my first UFO sighting report ever this week. What? Did you see a UFO? Yeah. Yeah. When? Do you want to hear, hear about it? How, we're supposed to be inside our houses. How did you see a UFO? Well, I was, I mean, I was on my porch out in the backyard. All right, tell me. Yeah, so, okay. This was on Monday night because yes. that was class. Yeah. Yes. So it was right after class on Monday night. We got out around uh, 8.40. I looked over the horizon. I was talking to my friend Eric on the phone. And I saw a satellite coming over the northern horizon, and it was it reached its apex about ten to twenty degrees to the west of me, and then went down over the southern horizon. And I didn't really think anything of it because I like I've seen lots of satellites up in the sky, and you know I was like, oh, cool satellites! I love watching them. Uh, and then I saw another one following the exact same path. And then right behind that, I saw another one and another one. And they just kept coming. They were separated by like 30 degrees, six feet. (laughs) They were separated by about like 20, 30 degrees each coming over the Northern horizon and following this exact same linear path. And that's never how satellites act in the sky. Wow. Like I've never seen more than one satellite on the same path. They kept coming for like a solid 10 minutes. I even came in and, and got uh, Anna Marie and was like, Anna Marie, come look at this. And I was mm-hmm. talking to Eric on the phone. I was like, guys, I don't know what I'm seeing. Cause like, it's not, it's definitely not a plane. It's definitely like in orbit. And there's like somewhere between 10 and 30 of them. I didn't count because I, I was sort of running around getting Anna Marie and like, anyways, it was very weird. And uh, this last, this lasted for a solid 10 10, 15 minutes. Mike, um, wow. So <laughs> I submitted a UFO report to MUFON, which is the Mutual UFO Network. Okay. And uh, they called me back and verified it and uh, had a little chat. And they suspect, and I think they're right, they suspect that it was um, related to Starlink. So apparently Elon Musk and friends just uh, – launched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of satellites into orbit. Um, oh, wow. So, so cool that you saw that. Yeah. So if they if they sort of launched a bunch on the same trajectory, then that could have been what I saw. But uh, 
I don't know. I think it's still worth submitting the report anyway, whether whether it's easily explainable or not, just for people trying to collate data in the future. So yeah, that was so cool. Anna Marie, so you saw it too? Um yes, technically. Um, but my eyesight is just so bad. So I was like squinting my eyes and like trying to see into the <laughs> darkness. <laughs> um which way is the sky? And then Jake's like, it's up. <laughs> That's how it feels. <laughs> um but I could like I could kind of see them um, a little bit uh, oh. just clearly. Uh, so yeah, it was it was cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That's like a once in a lifetime thing. Though as yeah. we learned, some people, you know, my hypnosis episode. There's some people who get visited like every night. Yeah, so it's not that once in a lifetime. My mom said that she saw a UFO out yeah. when she when she lived out in like Arizona in that area and she said that she she called i think she called the police and there was like yeah a lot of people are calling about this right now and that's that's how they left it (laughs) that's crazy (laughs) what did it look like um oh you know i can't i can't remember i just asked her this not that long ago okay you need to talk to her this week and then tell us next week okay i will she said that she's like, yeah, they were just all over the place. She's like very <laughs> casual about it. <laughs> like, <What>? Okay, <laughs> cool. <laughs> There's aliens everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my mom though. <laughs> she would say that. That's awesome though. That's so cool. Wow. Can't believe I missed it. How was your week? Oh, it's been good. Um, been doing a lot of working from home, as I'm sure you guys are. Mm-hmm. Um. A lot of like online trainings. Yeah, but I feel like time still blends together. But I did go to Target and I got a whole bunch of like games and I got a new Pokemon puzzle. Um, All right, everybody, it's time for a brand new segment here on Weird, Obscure, and Possibly Unsafe called I forgot what it was called. <laughs> Um, oh, trivia, yeah, the trivia, trivia blowdown. Tri- <laughs> <laughs> the trivia blowdown. I think we said trivia throwdown, but whatever. Okay, the trivia trivia time. It's time for trivia. So we get tired, I think, of everybody going in the same order every week, and I'm sure you get tired of that too. So we're going to start a new segment where the person who went first last week chooses a quantitative question to ask the other two people the person who gets closest gets to decide whether they go first or second the person who went last last time or first last time goes last this time and then boom we've got a new order every single week yes that's it if you don't understand the 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 sort of um logic behind the way that all works and is scrambled around uh, trust me, it works. Just trust me. Yes. Um, and I'm very excited for this trivia question. I feel like this may be coming out of left field and you may be wondering, why am I talking about this? Um, <laughs> but uh, all right, here we go. So this is Melissa. I'm asking the question to Jake and Anna Marie. This is a, there's the answer is a number. Whoever's closest wins, and you get to choose if you want to go first or what the order is. Um, so my question is, 
Owen Wilson says wow in every movie. How many times in his career has he said wow? <laughs> I just want to say I love this question. <laughs> Not expecting it. Perfect. Do you want to you want to take a guess? What are your guesses? Um, so so throughout his entire career Yes, and the information I have comes from, like, September 2018. Not that I know of any movies he's been in. It could be slightly off, but this is the number I'm going by to determine if you're right. Yeah, that's fine. That's close enough. Um, Okay. I'm going to say 52. Okay, noted, 52. I'm going to say 420. Okay. <laughs> All right. Your um, Anna Marie was much closer. <laughs> he says, "Wow, one hundred and times." Oh. oh no, no, no! A hundred and two <laughs> times in his acting career. What? And the reason I was going to make this question much more complicated because there's a really silly like equation, um, <laughs> figuring out how much Owen Wilson is paid for saying the word "wow" based on how many <laughs> words he says per movie, and they calculated that out. He says, "Wow." that many number of times and he has made this much money so they say that after like figuring this whole thing out just from saying the word wow he made around one hundred and thirty four thousand dollars wow 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 yeah so the estimate goes from one hundred and thirty four thousand dollars to one hundred ninety thousand dollars just from saying wow wow <laughs> Now I can't stop saying wow. Yeah. We can't stop saying wow. Oh, good. Wow. So you won. You get to choose. I did. Okay. Nice. Um, well, I'll say, uh, Jake, you can go first um, because you've never been first before. And I've never been second before. So You've never been first before. Yeah, but if I... I, if I, I want... have been second before. Yes, though. exactly. Okay. I yeah. get it. I get it. So okay. really shake it up. Wow. <laughs> Here we go. Awesome. Cool. All right. So are you guys ready to I don't even know how to introduce this topic. Um I'm excited. Should have thought about that before I did a podcast on it. <laughs> okay. So I am talking today about Lemurians. Lo what? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So Lemur how do, you know what? I didn't think about like a nice pithy way to say what it is. Lemurians are like a lost people of a of a lost continent that um figures into a lot of weird paranormal occult mythology. So okay. Just you know what? Don't don't uh, don't get too many expectations and just come along on this ride with me. Okay, I'm I'm with you. All right, so my topic is Lemurians or Lemuria. Um, Lemuria is is believed to be a lost continent, kind of like Atlantis, but on most accounts, it is in the Pacific and Indian Oceans rather than the Atlantic. So it's sort of like the West Coast version of Atlantis. Okay. Some people say it's synonymous with a lost continent called Mu, 
M-U. I don't <gasps> know if you guys have heard of this. Like the, isn't that a Greek symbol or something? Yeah, actually, it mm-hmm. is. Um, but others say that the two continents are distinct. Okay. How did the idea of Lemuria come about in the first place? So it seems like one of the oldest um, uh, ideas about Lemuria comes from 19th century biology. So this biologist named Philip Sclater in 1864 call, um, published a, an article called The Mammals of Madagascar in the Quarterly Journal of Science. And he posited the idea of Lemuria in order to account for fossils of lemurs that existed in Madagascar and Indian, but that India, but that were not in Africa in the Middle East. So at the time they didn't have theories of like plate tectonics or whatever. So they didn't really think about like continents moving around. Mm-hmm. So he found these similar fossils in India and Madagascar theorized that Indian and Ma- India and Madagascar um, were part of the same landmass, but didn't have the concept for them to drift. So he thought that there was a landmass that connected them that sunk into the water. Right. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Okay. I'm just picturing where, you know, just it's pretty much just Atlantis and like the bubble yeah. bowl, like that kind of bubble situation. The bubble bowl? Like in here in SpongeBob. <laughs> You know, when they perform at the, the bubble. Oh, bowl, yeah, yeah, And it's yeah, like yeah. a bubble encapsulating so they can live and it just sinks yeah. down. Okay. Yeah. Wait, and you said fossils of lemurs? Lemurs, yeah. Which I... Th- oh, what? Oh, I was saying, are these lemur people? Um, no. The okay. people of Lemuria are not lemur people, but Lemuria is named after lemurs. Oh, my God. I didn't put that together. Good yeah. one, Anna Marie. Because, <laughs> because this guy who posited it, posited it in order to explain fossils of lemurs on different oh. con- on continents. Okay. He was a lemur file. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think that <laughs> means what you want it to mean. <laughs> and this is how Zimbumafu got started. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the dark origins of Zimbumafu. So tell us about lemur land. What's okay. it called again? Lemur oh. people. Lemur people. Uh, okay. So he suggested that Madagascar and India were part of the same continent at one point. And he, here's, a, here's a quote that Wikipedia pulled from his article. He says, the anomalies of the mammal, I think, I don't know what nationality is. He might be. I'm just going to assume that if you were a scientist in the 19th century, you speak with a British accent or like a kind of, at least a, a kind of like. Who do like a Nigel Thornberry accent. Not, how does he go again? <laughs> oh my God. That's the most difficult accent. Uh, how do you do it? I, uh, oh, I You have to listen to it. It's just very it, nasally, like. right? Nigel Thornberry. Like yeah, that? exactly. Yeah, just like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That works. That works. <laughs> The anomalies of the mammal fauna of Madagascar can best be explained by supposing that a large continent occupied parts of the Atlantic and Indian Oceans. That this continent was broken up into islands, of which some have become amalgamated with Africa, some with what is now Asia, 
And that Madagascar and the Mascarene Islands, we have existing relics of this great continent, for which I should propose the name Lemuria. <laughs> so there you go. Excellent. Beautiful accent. Thanks. It really brought me back. <laughs> I need to, I'm, I'm sure that was not a Nigel Thornberry accent. <laughs> it was It was close it was something it's acceptable yeah <laughs> um okay so land bridge theory at the time was pretty common since darwinian theory was accepted but plate tectonics and continental drift hadn't yet been widely theorized right so if you accept darwinian theory you find these um you find these links between different species whether they um that resemble one another or appear to belong to the same um you know parts of the family trees or whatever, but are separated by, you know, vast uh, gulfs of water. Um, and because they didn't have plate tectonics, lots of people believe, believed in lots of land bridges that would allow species to spread out. Um, Lemuria was even used to explain the absence of the missing link in the fossil record, right? The missing link between the animal kingdom and and human human beings as we know them today. Well, so all the evidence is just hidden at Lemuria. Yeah, it seems like kind of a cop out to me personally. <laughs> no, <sorry. laughs> it's all there. We just have to find it. They're just saying, you know, we 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 don't have this uh, we don't have this piece of the fossil record. Clearly, it must be in Lemuria. We can't find it. It's at the bottom of the ocean. Okay, uh, fair enough. Anything yeah. that you can't. Uh, just say exist with actual <laughs> evidence to say, oh, it's it's there, but just at the bottom of the ocean. It's a lemur. The lemurs have it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Blame the lemurs. Okay, so after this idea of the lost continent got out there, the lost continent of Lemuria, which is different than Atlantis, which was also out there, it was adopted by theosophy and what Wikipedia calls, quote, general fringe belief. So there are a few general accounts of Lemuria. I will cover a couple of them. In every case, though, it is posited that an ancient continent existed and then sank, similarly to Atlantis, as a result of some catastrophe. Some people even think that it was the result of a pole shift, which will one day destroy the modern world. So I don't quite know what's involved in a pole shift, except I guess that the like north and south poles that control the or sort of govern the magnetic field of of the planet change or something like that anyways after the theory of plate tectonics and continental drift were accepted the scientific community moved on from the Lem from the lemuria hypothesis and it was rendered obsolete right so the grounds for the positing of lemuria um, are no longer valid but that doesn't stop some people. So what's interesting is uh, India and Madagascar had been part of the same landmass, as far as we can reconstruct it. But like, but India had broken away from Madagascar due to continental drift into its present position, not because there was some connecting piece of land that fell away. Uh, so it turns out the supercontinent broke apart rather than sinking beneath sea level. Okay, so there's the science. It was a hypothesis at one point. Uh, now it's not. But Madame Blavatsky 
discussed Lemuria in her book, The Secret Doctrine, which is basically one of the seminal texts of theosophy, which is just going to keep coming up again and again and again. Yes. And also because this is not a science podcast we established last time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. I'm uh, uh, vociferously anti-science. Oh, we're going to have a problem with the science, <laughs> the, with the nerds out there. <laughs> Melissa, Melissa is the is the Scully of the podcast. Oh yes, and now you guys know X Files at least. Yeah. I don't know how much you've been watching, but uh, we've we've done what quite a few episodes. <laughs> yeah, probably more than ten, less than fifteen. Yeah. Wow. So we're we're making our way through. Awesome. Did you get to the fluke man yet? No. The what? Fluke man, he's like a worm man. No. Oh, you'll get there. Season two. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. I'm not made there yet. <laughs> it's a really good episode. It's very silly. Nice. Okay, so Madame Blavatsky discusses Lemuria and the secret doctrine. So the Lemurians were considered the third root race. And it's important to note here that r- the concept of root races in theosophy does not map onto. Um, ethnicity in in the same kind of way that modern categories of race might. Um, but what she's referring to here are different stages of, of human development or different stages of development that occur in order to bring about like this fully realized spiritual humanity. Mm-hmm. So the Lemurians <laughs> were apparently the third stage in that process of development okay so it's about to get a little weird good you're at the right place (laughs) (laughs) so according to theosophical beliefs lemurians lived in the jurassic period and so they coexisted with dinosaurs lemuria also predates atlantis it is also in lemuria that the human body first began to take solid form. They weren't quite solid at the time. They were kind of gelatinous. I already have so many questions. (laughs) Gelatinous lemur people riding dinosaurs. Wow. They know for a fact that it came before Atlantis. Yes, because Atlantis, I think, is the fourth or fifth um, uh, stage of development. I did. I had to do like a crash course in theosophy this morning. Um, okay, so in Lemuria, the development of gender first occurred, dividing bodies into male and female. The air was thicker and the water was thinner at the time, and trees were like giant ferns. The gelatinous, non-bony mass of the early Lemurian was genderless. and reproduction could take place without fertilization from another body. So essentially an egg could be sweated out of the, of the um, semi gelatinous body of the first sort of lump of jello that was the pre-human early Lemurian. This feels so Cronenbergian to me. It is. Yeah. So people are just like, at this stage of development are just blobs yes that just like split and divide like giant cells 
Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they sweat out their little egg babies. Oh, okay. <laughs> and the the offspring be, is basically a smaller replica of the parent, um, but it needed heat and supervision in order to develop properly. Gotcha. Gradually, uh, gradually over the course of hundreds of thousands of years, the um, the gelatinous form began to solidify. Eventually, it could stand upright, and it had three eyes, two in the front of its head and one in the back. Um, and fun Impressive. Fact, yeah. So this, this third eye in the back of the head, they didn't have hair, so they could see behind them, right? The third eye in the back of the head will, um, remained until the end of the Lemurian people uh, period, and then after the third eye became an internal organ of psychic ability, which continued into the Atlantean period. And today it is the pineal gland. That's like a gland people have in their brains today. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Your pineal gland is considered by a lot of people, your third eye. Um, there's lots of interesting stuff about the pineal gland. Maybe we'll do some pineal gland stuff on here. Also, mm. apparently, tap water calcifies your pineal gland or something. So, so they sell all kinds of weird supplements to decalcify your pineal gland or something. I, I would love to see the science behind that, but thank you. We'll move on. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> no, Melissa. We no don't science. do science. <laughs> well, I'm not going to pay for some supplements, and I don't even know what they're fixing. <laughs> okay. Well, well you, know you can what? just remain unenlightened. It's fine. <laughs> okay. So, um, William Scott Elliott gave a slightly different description of the Lemurians. I think what's going on here, so I'm in the middle of talking about the development of the Lemurians. By the end of the development of the Lemurians, you get very humanoid creatures that are very similar to us, right? So, William Scott Elliott said, the Lemur his stat that his the Lemurian stature was gigantic, somewhere between twelve and fifteen feet. Um, he had a long lower jaw, strangely flattened face, eyes small but piercing and set curiously far apart so that he could see sideways as well as in the front. The eye on the back of the head, on which part of the head no hair, of course, grew, enabled him to see in that direction also. He had no forehead but there seemed to be a roll of flesh where it should have been. The eye, or sorry, the head sloped backwards and upwards in a rather curious way. The arms and legs were longer in proportion than ours and could not be perfectly straightened either at elbows or knees. The hands and feet were enormous. The heels projected backwards in an ungainly way round his head on which the hair was quite short. Although I thought that he just said there was no hair on the head. Yeah. Well, he said there was none near the eye. So maybe it's just like a weird, like, uh, crown, like a headband of hair, you know? Yeah, could be. So, yeah. So that's his description of the Lemurians. Are there, like, like renderings of this uh, creature? I don't know. I mean, there Early are renderings. Human? There are renderings of Lemurians, but they look quite different, different than this. So some Lemurians spread around the region. Um, like we said, Madagascar, India, um, New Zealand, Australia, that region. 
Um, and other Lemurians, according to theosophical belief, were deliberately relocated to specific to a specific area in order to seed the next race of Atlanteans. So the uh, the theosophists held that the Lemurians made a great leap in evolution by the end of their civilization, achieving physical existence and then splitting the individual into to quote-unquote genders because they have never read Judith Butler. <laughs> I know who that is. <laughs> uh, all right. Oh, Melissa, you're muted. Oh, you just muted yourself. You're good. All right. And I can't remember if... Um, I can't remember if... Kabbalah plays a really significant role in Madame Blavatsky's way of thinking, but there is this thing in, in uh, sort of Kabbalistic interpretations of Genesis that Adam was originally um, uh, uh, both male and female and that Adam was then split in half and then Adam was male and Eve was female. And so there's this original um, uh, time before the fall when there was no such thing as gender or sexuality because everybody was everything. Mm. And then, and then that there was that split um, that sort of, I don't know. There's an interesting mm. parallel. To yeah, that is interesting. That's what I was thinking of, like, and I always pictured it, and I don't know if this is the right way to picture it. I always picture it that they were, like, their butts were stuck together, and it was, like, one person (laughs) with, like, four arms and four legs, and then they just got split. (laughs) So. I don't, that's probably not how it was supposed to be. I think that's in the Bible. were stuck together. (laughs) Oh, Anna Marie says it's in the Bible. I think that's that's Genesis chapter two. (laughs) Okay. All right. So further developments. In 1899, Frederick Spencer Oliver wrote a book called A Dweller on Two Planets. And he claimed that survivors from Lemuria were living in Mount Shasta in a series of complex tunnels beneath the mountain. So Mount Shasta is... This goes back to the tunnels. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This is another (laughs) subterranean subterranean thing. That is a twist I did not expect, (laughs) I have to say. So Mount Shasta is uh, sort of in Northern California, like near the, I guess, California, Oregon border. I've never been anywhere near there, so I I don't have a whole lot to say about it. But apparently it is a, um, a, at least one of my friends tells me it is a, sort of destination for a lot of new age people who want to um, do like healing trips or like retreats and things like that. And this is part of the mythology about, or at least the contemporary sort of folklore about Mount Shasta is that the Lemurians actually live inside the mountain. Well, shit. So, In 1931, Harvey Spencer Lewis, using a pseudonym, wrote a book about the hidden Lemurians of Mount Shasta. And this book is widely regarded as the reason for the popularity for the legends 
um, about them living underground there. Okay. Some eyewitness accounts. In 1904, (laughs) British prospector J.C. Brown uh, said that he found a city um, 11 miles inside the mountain. And it was full of gold, shields, mummies. Um, Some of the mummies were 10 feet tall. And when he told uh, the story to others, they compiled an 80-person team to explore the mountain, but they didn't find, um, excuse me, on the day that the team was supposed to to start their uh, project, Brown disappeared. Okay. That's, I didn't do a whole lot of research on that. So that's the little blurb that I have. So in the 1930s, this guy named (laughs) Guy Ballard, uh, Ballard, maybe guy's my dad's name <laughs> guy well i just thought it was funny because i said the guy named guy oh that you're making <laughs> fun of the name and i was gonna yell at you <laughs> <laughs> no we make that joke all the time in my house cool <laughs> so yeah we're making fun of your dad mostly <gasps> typically we, just hate, we hate your dad <laughs> i'm gonna go tell him right now <laughs> actually i don't think i've ever met I, I met your dad once very briefly when he picked you up after no. our wedding oh yeah Yeah. he seems like a very cool guy from what you've told me so yeah from our brief drive-by encounters (laughs) yeah okay hey guy how you doing (laughs) i'm Melissa's dad (laughs) okay so guy ballard reported to meet reported that he met saint germain it's not clear if saint germain is supposed to be a lemurian or not but he said that he met St. Germain on, on Mount Shasta, which led to the founding of what's called the I Am Movement. I Am in quotes. Which had over a million followers up until Ballard's death. So St. Germain was considered to be an ascended master, which is another concept in theosophy, which is to say an individual that has reached like a higher level of awareness and maybe isn't even bound by the same physical laws as human bodies. So I didn't do a whole lot of research on the ascended master concept, but I'm sure it will come up in the next week or two in something else, you know, uh, that's a fair assumption. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think theosophy has been in like at least every other episode that like in my stories, you know, maybe this is some kind of initiation. Yeah. Ooh. <gasps> now you're doing your studying and soon you will join them (laughs) yeah um so yeah so the idea so the the sort of um presence of saint germain is definitely felt in the uh mount shasta constellation of of mythologies and and different folklores and things okay here are some more contemporary beliefs surrounding Lemurians and Mount Shasta. So one account is a bit different than the theosophical account. So in theosophy, the age of the Lemurians uh, ended before the age of the Atlanteans began, right? But on LemuriaConnection.com, the story is 
Lemuria goes back to 4,500,000 BC when the, civiliz- <laughs> when the civilization ruled the earth. The continent of Lemuria was located in the Pacific Ocean and extended from the western United States and Canada to the lands in the Indian Ocean and Madagascar. So on this account, the island is shifted this way. So the island actually extends out or the continent extends all the way over to the United States. And these, this uh, group of people sounds a lot more advanced than like blobs that are just sweating out eggs. (laughs) So (laughs) 25,000 years ago, Atlantis and Lemuria were two of the most highly civilized, highly, that seems highly civilized civilization. (laughs) Seems like bad writing. (laughs) Let's just say they had a lot of technologically advanced developments under their belt. And then they, it led to, so, th- so this is a quote from the LemurianConnection.com. Dissension between the two, Atlantis and Lemuria, arose regarding the development and evolution of other civilizations. The Lemurians believed that the other less evolved cultures should be left alone to continue their own evolution at their own pace according to their own understandings and pathway, whereas the Atlanteans believed that less evolved cultures should be controlled by the two more evolved civilizations. Their argument over ideologies resulted in several thermonuclear wars, which weakened both continental plates. When the wars were over and the dust had settled, there were no winners, only death, destruction, and the further debasing of the human spirit to the point that both sides realized the futility of such behavior. So from that sort of ancient nuclear war, basically, uh, the Lemurians went underground and... Uh, decided to uh, to reside inside Mount Shasta, and, and they would be protected from the wars raging on the surface. <clears throat> so, Mount Shasta houses the city called Telos, T-E-L-O-S. Now, in Greek, that's telos, or te- te- telos, but uh, most of the pronunciations I heard from people that actually were around Mount Shasta was Talos. So who knows? Um, Apparently it was designed to house a population of about 200,000, but according to some, over 1.5 million Lemurians live in the city of Talos. And that in Greek means end, right? Yeah, end as in like um, the, the purpose of something, you know? And how many million people live there? 1.5. That's a lot of underground it, people. <laughs> and if you think about it, Lemurians are exceptionally tall, so they take up like one and a half amounts of the amount of space mm. as yeah. us. So modern day um, Lemurian theorists around Mount Shasta say that Lemurians can be felt and contacted through spiritual practices. Uh, the Lemurians were highly evolved, were a highly evolved spiritual race, according to them. And so they can receive messages without physical contact. It also turns out that Lemurians use crystals as communication tools. And a lot of um, more contemporary people say that there are messages kind of encoded into these crystals by the Lemurians that teach oneness and healing. 
And so crystals are hold a hold a big sort of place in 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 this stuff. Okay, so there's a lot of debate about the physical appearance of Lemurians. Um, so some people think that they look like basically just very sort of uh, blonde hair, blue eyed, like fairy tale Nordic kind of people, but just really tall. Uh, others say that they look more like they have animalistic qualities and I don't know what that means. And I didn't look it up. Um, but everybody agrees that they're very tall. <laughs> Anyways, I'm, I'm basically done. I guess the last little bit that I'll talk about is I was doing some research and there are, um, uh, there are guided tours and things that you can take of Mount Shasta that are based in these sort of Lemurian beliefs. Um, so one place that I found is uh, shastavortex.com. Uh, so they believe that Mount Shasta is a powerful spiritual energy for vortex, which I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it sounds important. Um, and they... Well, I'll just read a quote from their site. What is Talos? Many people believe that there is an ancient Lemurian crystal city underneath Mount Shasta called Talos. It's actually a part of a larger inner earth complex of cities, most often called Agartha. Supposedly, the many cataclysms and wars taking place on Earth's surface drove people underground. These cities were created as refuges for the people and safe havens for sacred records okay. teachings and technologies that were cherished by the ancient cultures according to that legend there are several entrances to the many cities of garta throughout the world and mount shasta is one of them okay i mean fair that people would be driven underground i yeah. mean it sounds kind of nice yeah. in some ways i guess if they have the technology to do so because like where what's your food source well, okay, so this is interesting. So I have a couple eyewitness accounts, supposedly, or also like astral, almost astral projection experiences that people have had with Talos. Um, so this is how I'm wrapping up. Um, people report being led through doors that appear in sheer rocks or even trees. And they see, they, they go into the mountain. They're sort of welcomed by a very like hospitable uh Lemurians who are basically just really tall people uh, and they see strange technologies or experience past life memories tied to Lemuria one woman had a dream experience after hiking the Mount Shasta and having getting some crystals and she went to sleep and experienced a very vivid dream of a loving leader type being being with long-ish blonde hair kind of like a tour he, he functioned kind of like a tour guide and he said she said that there was basically a garden the size of a football field inside this mountain and they somehow channeled sunlight down into the mountain through technological means which was interesting um some people reported that there was a sort of uh um luminescence inside like the place was lit even though they couldn't find a light source um and like in ancient egypt they would use like mirrors and stuff maybe i don't know 
Could be. Um, okay, so the garden was the size of a football field, and then there was a platform, and he showed her ships that could be changed by thought and intent. And the ship changed based on the needs of its flight. It could get more or less aerodynamic. And uh, I also saw a little section of a travel channel show with Nick Watts. And I've never heard of this guy before, but he was kind of a dick. But he went on this tour with the uh, Shasta Vortex tour guide people. Um, and I don't know. He, he was kind of mean, but it was interesting to see them. Uh, that's all I have. That's so cool. And like, the only thing is when people say something happened in a dream, like, come on, you can dream the most beautiful underground, you know, Valley and there's amazing people and they look how you imagine they would look. And you have this wonderful tour guide who shows you all the stops, but yeah, it's a dream. Yeah, I would. Well, so I didn't have time to find really good. Um, th- let's just say the good details were in the middle of a lot of really poorly written firsthand accounts. That oh, okay. I didn't want to sift through. Gotcha. But they're there. They're at the bottom of the ocean. Oh, <laughs> the gotcha. yeah. They're at the bottom of the ocean of the internet. Okay. <laughs> Um, so that is, that is the, um, that is the idea of Lemuria, which wow. I guess, you know, might come up again. Cause apparently it, uh, is, is, uh, an integral piece of a lot of different kinds of occult societies and mythologies and, and strange fringe beliefs as Wikipedia says. So I need more crystals. Yeah, man. Power <laughs> of crystals can't be understated. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I, I literally never heard of this before. I only knew of Atlantis, and I'm excited that there's a second one. Yeah, yeah. same. It's actually the first one, Atlantis. Oh. Number two. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Number one. Yeah. Well, have, you, have you guys seen the, um, that Atlantis movie? The animated one? Yes. Yeah, I used to play the video game a lot. Wow. This I was just thinking of that the whole time where they're like super advanced and they all have like white blonde hair or whatever and they're all beautiful. Yep, same deal. Except for according to some people, they were jello blobs. <laughs> I like that for that one. Yeah. So cool. Well, thank you. Uh-huh. Awesome job. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, my turn. Um, so I'm going to share a little alien story with you guys today. Yeah. Um, called the Maury Island incident. My sources were, uh, Wikipedia, history.com, MUFON, actually very, uh, nicely timed. Hey, I know them. Yes. Uh, yeah, very relevant. Um, and then a short film called The Maury Incident, um, again, not Maury Povich, uh, directed by Scott Schaefer. Um, so that was like a retelling of the incident. So that was kind of fun uh, to watch. But um, okay, so getting down to it. Um, on June 21st, 1947, 
Harold Dahl, his son, Christopher, who was home from school for the summer, their dog, and two workers were uh, on a boat off the coast of Maury Island, which sits about six miles west of Des Moines, Washington, so in the Pacific Northwest. Um, the crew were out collecting logs, which uh, were a common hazard, uh, just kind of like laying in the water. Um, so often these logs were collected and sold to nearby lumber farms. So that's kind of what they were out doing that day. Um, when suddenly at two o'clock in the afternoon, as the boat approached the east coast of Maury Island, they looked up and all saw six donut-shaped objects in the sky hovering above the boat. Donut shape? Like there's a hole in the middle? Yes. What? Yeah, flying donuts. <gasps> Dope. <laughs> That's Homer's dream. <laughs> Six giant flying donuts in the sky. <laughs> Although they might be hard to reach. The people on this boat saw six donut-shaped objects hovering in the sky above them. Um, and so one of the one of these flying objects dropped down about 500 feet above the water, uh, lower than the other five that were there. Um, so Dahl pulled the boat to shore, fearing that this object was going to crash into them. Um, and he also managed to take some pictures with this camera in this moment. Um, so this lower object hovered for a few minutes while the others remained above, still just kind of flying, um, circling above it. <clears throat> then another one of the objects lowered and touched the one that had dropped uh, closer to the water. So then Dahl said that he heard a thud, and then all of a sudden thousands of pieces of debris suddenly fell from the center of the ship that was hit. <laughs> okay, so um, this metal debris that Dahl saw was white and lightweight, um, kind of like newspaper almost. Um, but this wasn't the only debris that fell from these objects. Um, so about 20 tons of dark metal that looked like lava rock fell from the ship. And as it fell into the water, steam just erupted because the material was just so hot. Um, so most of this debris fell into the bay, but some also landed on the beach where Dahl and his crew had settled um, after seeing these objects. So the hot metal fell and burned Christopher's arm, his son. Um, and also, uh, all you dog lovers out there, close your ears. <laughs> oh, is this going to be a recurring theme on this podcast? Apparently. <laughs> well, the but, other one's about cat lovers, so. Yeah, that's true. But um, <laughs> okay. unfortunately, the dog did not make it. Oh. Yeah. That's sad. It is sad. Um, so after all this happened... Um, <clears throat> The ship, um, or the the, ob the flying object, rose into the air, and all of the objects together just headed west out into the sea. So it just, like, all of a sudden they were gone. Hmm. Um, so Dahl went into his boat, tried to radio for help, but the radio didn't work. Um, so they decided to make their way back to the dock uh, to try to get his son to the hospital. Um, and on their way back, they also had a little doggy funeral where they buried him at sea Aww. and they brought the doggy for the boat 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. Although, oh, pooch. Yeah. Although in the movie, it kind of felt a little less um, reverent <laughs> where uh, the guy was just like, get that dog. We can't, we can't let Christopher see him. Get the dog away from here. And they just like put the dog in a bag and threw him over the boat. I was like, oh, what? Oh my <laughs> God. So really Heartless. You just saw an alien. You didn't lose your heart. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You should have been there to scold them. <laughs> Gladly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really, um, it was really something. Um, <laughs> really sad. Um, so after this incident, after they got Christopher to the hospital, <clears throat> Dahl told, told his boss, um, whose name was Fred Chrisman, um, he told him what happened, showing him the pictures that he took. Um, and the pictures when they were developed actually did show the ships, uh, but unfortunately the negatives had spots on them, which Chrisman just believed to be due to radiation exposure. Um, so even with this photographic evidence, Chrisman was still like, nah, I don't believe you. Um, but despite his skepticism, Chrisman went back to Maury Island to collect rock samples. Um, so because of all this debris that had fallen down onto the beach, there were still pieces lying everywhere um so suddenly while he was there to collect this evidence uh one of the the airships the flying objects appeared above him hovering there as if watching him so it returned to the site so this story apparently tells one of if not the first appearance of uh the men in black the morning after the incident uh doll woke up to a man wearing all black um knocking at his door and this man suggested that they go out to breakfast together seems nice it was not whoa yeah um so doll uh kind of (laughs) (laughs) he thought he made a friend but he did it (laughs) they have donuts for breakfast actually i will say that in the movie they did oh Oh my god. Get out of here. Oh my god. Wow. We're really making some connections. This whole story is just a joke. It's just a <laughs> joke about donuts. Oh man. When did the police get involved? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh man. God, this is gonna require some heavy editing. Go ahead. Yeah. Um Dahl feeling like he couldn't say no. <coughs> Followed this man um in his black buick to the restaurant the man was driving the black buick um which is only notable because the men in black um in this kind of uh like i don't want to say mythos but kind of like that that has developed about around the men in black they always wear um driving black cars too so anyway you can cut that out it's not important no 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 Um, No, it is important because i think it comes up in the movie and oh. uh and i think also like other accounts that i've heard of they're like it's like a black car like it's supposed to be inconspicuous kind of and mm-hmm. it's like a could be, some people believe like the men in black are like government people i mean i don't want to get too into that but yeah what what kind of cars does the government drive but like black buicks apparently buicks um yeah so as they ate probably their donuts um, the man did not ask any questions, but instead 
proceeded to give a very detailed account of what had happened to Dahl the day before. Um, and according to uh, this book um, from 1956 called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers uh, by Gray Barker, the man told Dahl, quote, what I have said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to hold in laughter. Yeah, well, because I just saw your notes and it says they knew too much about <laughs> flying sauces. I know. <laughs> I forgot it's okay. to add the R. <laughs> sauces. So after he recounted the story, the man said to Dahl that if he told anyone what happened, that quote unquote bad things would happen to him and his family. Oh my God. Is he threatening him? Yes. Oh, most definitely. Um, and so there are many cases um, uh, about the men in black. So this is just one <coughs> of many that kind of came after. Um, and in each one, uh, the perp- like the main purpose of these men in black uh, seems to be to make sure that people stay quiet about strange paranormal experiences. Um, and I don't want to get too much detail about get into too much detail about the men in black um, mm-hmm. because I feel like that could be an entire segment in itself. Um, but just knowing that like their role is to keep people quiet um, is really important. So Harold Dahl and Fred Christman shared their story with this guy named Ray Palmer in Chicago, um, who later founded Fate Magazine, which will kind of come into play a little bit later. Um, So they sent him pieces of the metal that had fallen down from the the airship, uh, along with some written accounts of what they saw that day. So Palmer then connected with this guy named Kenneth Arnold, uh, who was an aviator um, that also said he had seen several UFOs in that area um, around the same time. Um, So specifically in like the Mount Rainier area um, and who he had been investigating other UFO sightings during that time. So um, when Arnold found out about the Maury Island incident, um, he, along with, airline pilot E.J. Smith met with Chrisman and and Dahl, um, interviewed them, and examined Dahl's boat. At this point, um, they, uh, Chrisman and Dahl couldn't produce any of the pictures that they had originally said uh, they had. That's a Um, shame. Yeah, I'm not, it doesn't, I couldn't find why that was the case. I also googled those pictures, and of course, nothing came up. Just a lot of, like, photoshopped pictures. Like, Mm. clearly photoshopped pictures. 3D Um, renderings of what could have happened. Yes. So in addition to not being able to produce any of these pictures, Dahl also said that his son disappeared. Um, And I don't think this was too long after the actual incident. And at that time, his son was like pretty young, um, probably like preteen, I would say. Um, So Dahl said his son had disappeared. But then later, Dahl said that his son was actually waiting tables in Montana but he didn't he couldn't remember how he got there <laughs> so all right sir keep track of your kids and their pets so that was an interesting part of that that story um so later um captain lee davidson and first lieutenant frank brown of the u.s army air force 
um, who in addition to being pilots also happened to be intelligence specialists, um, flew up from California to kind of check out um, the check out Maury Island and, and talk with Chrisman and Dahl. Um, so they arrived and met um, with Arnold and Smith uh, and Chrisman, uh, admitting there might be something to this story, but they had to leave that area around midnight. Um, I also read in some other places that they thought it was just aluminum, but uh, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> those Aluminium. Yes. Those were the skeptics talking. Mm. Obviously. They probably talked like that too. It's simply aluminium. <laughs> In the Nigel Thornberry voice. <laughs> <laughs> Davidson and Brown departed sometime around like 2 a.m. Um, and they were flying in a B-25 bomber, which I'm not really sure what that looks like in particular. A I don't plane. Know planes. Yes, that's, I, can, I know that much. It's a plane. Gotcha. Um, yeah. <clears throat> So they left with two other men um, and some of this strange metal that they had found on the beaches um, on board the plane. But about 20 minutes later, the airplane crashed near Australia, <gasps> Washington, on their way back to California. Um, and the two crew members that joined them managed to parachute out safely, but Davidson and Brown did not make it. Um, so the FBI newspapers received a bunch of phone calls stating that the plane was shot down to cover up what Brown and Davidson had found at Maury Island. Whoa. And ultimately this led to the Air Force broadening its investigation and the FBI starting their own. Wow, this is going all the way to the top. Yes. Very quickly. Hmm. Um, Suspicious. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> Suspicious. <laughs> I'm gra- just, gradually mor- morphing into like a mid-Atlantic, like 1920s, like gangster. Yeah, she. Yeah, she. Suspicious, see. <laughs> it's going all the way to the top, see. Well, <laughs> well the Air Force found this very suspicious. Oh. Um, actually, not that suspicious. Uh, and. <laughs> <laughs> A little, just a little a little spicious a little, a little stitious oh yeah um uh and had so the air force had determined that the plane crash was an accident and that one of the engines had caught fa- fire but before brown and davidson could escape with um like the other two men the wing broke off which then broke off a section of the tail which then also fell off so this caused the plane to go into a tailspin with the men still trapped inside that sounds um, horrifying. Yeah, it really does. Um, that sounds really scary, and I feel really bad. Yeah. Uh, so another Air Force investigator came to speak with Dahl and Chrisman um, after this whole after the plane crash, um, and uh, the investigator also visited their boat. So the investigator saw that the damage didn't match the damage the two men had described, and that there are no metal samples on the beach. And that the existing samples looked like slag from a metal smelter. So basically it just looked like melted metal. Um, Nothing really notable. Um, So as mentioned, um, the FBI also started their own investigation, uh, ultimately concluding, like the Air Force, that the incident was actually a hoax and that 
Dahl and Chrisman had faked the story to get publicity and make money. Um, so the FBI said that if they, if Chrisman and Dahl dropped the whole thing, then um, they wouldn't prosecute the two men for fraud um, and fraud that led to the death of two officers. So, and I guess in the files, um, the FBI files, Dahl stated, quote, if questioned by the authorities, he's, he was going to say it was a hoax because he did not want any further trouble over the matter. Um, so Dahl was pretty uh, willing to, you know, stay quiet to make sure that his family was safe mm -hmm. and that he wouldn't um, get prosecuted. Mm -hmm. Wow. He yeah. was threatened into silence after knowing all those people died. Yeah, so kind of sounds a little bit like the Men in Black to me. Hmm. Just saying. They did warn him, didn't they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They did. Um. So. So Dahl and Chrisman went along at first, uh, making statements that it was all fake and refused to give any other interviews on the matter. Uh, but years later. In a January 1950 issue of Fate magazine, comes back into play here, um, Chrisman stated that the incident actually did happen. And Kenneth Arnold, uh, Kenneth Arnold also included the incident in his 1952 book, The Coming of the Saucers. And I wrote saucers this time and not sauces. Good. Um, <laughs> um, so now there are conflicting beliefs about the incident. Uh, some people continue to think that it was a hoax. Um, others believe that the U.S. government was behind a conspiracy that may have been involved in anything from UFOs to dumping nucle nuclear waste um, in, like, the area where Maury Island is. Um, some also believe that a shadow government agency sabotaged Davidson's and Brown's plane in order to eliminate the investigators and also to place the blame on Chrisman and Dahl. Well very suspicious um so people have revisited the site of um uh the incident here and they were hoping to find strange rocks or to kind of experience something similar um but never have found anything new so um and also the fbi files were classified for 50 years but apparently they're declassified and at one point when I first started researching this, I actually found the files online, but then I checked this morning and I couldn't find them. Damn so. it. <laughs> wow. They're they on to you. They, they know you were, you're looking into they it. They knew you they were knew. looking for it. Now they have our, oh, now they, now they have it. We're on a list. Maybe that's why in the address We're bar, on the donut list. <laughs> as in. The menu. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why it says die in my address bar. <gasps> I looked at my address bar and it just says die, D-I-E. <laughs> um, anyway, Sign. that's the story of the Maury Island incident. Nice. <laughs> well, far. great job, Anna-Marie. That was super interesting. I feel like every time I hear about the men in black, it's like they act so different. Is it a government agency? Are they aliens themselves right. working for the government? Or are the aliens just doing their own thing? I feel like there's so many variations. Yeah, so many possibilities. So this is just one and this is um like the first recording of a visit from the men, men in black so whoa first one the first one are you guys ready yes i was born ready i was born and the doctor was like he's ready 
<laughs> I was ready before I was born. Wow. Born well. <laughs> okay. Well, do you, you don't even know my topic, but you're ready for it. That's good. I yeah, yes. I t- just told you I was born ready. <laughs> Perfect. I just um, said the doctor. The doctor said I was ready when I was born. I mean, that's that's really good news for you, but. Anne Marie sounds like she was ready she before was you were ready. So, yeah. anyways, here we go. And that means I can tell Melissa you can go now. Thank you. Okay, we're let's ready. begin. We were born ready. <laughs> wow, there's totally at, different. We were ready at or before our births. Jeez, you guys are too ready for this. Calm down. This is a totally different vibe being at the end of the episode. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me let me unready myself just a bit. I think we've spent too much time in the house. <laughs> We're still quarantined. Wow, okay. Let me tell you about the yokai. So I'm going to start this off before I even tell you any information. I do not speak Japanese. I don't know if I'm pronouncing all this stuff right. I tried my best looking up how to pronounce things. Um, Also, I'm not an expert. I'm someone who did a lot of Wikipedia research. So if I get something wrong, Please don't murder me. I just, I'm trying my best to look up this stuff. And I, um, I know there's a lot of different versions of this information and I um, do a little bit of history with this. So um, yeah, I'm just trying my best. Just setting that up. You did what you could as we all do. And we warmly invite uh, additional information or corrections so that we can all learn together. Beautiful. So we're we're just asking you to roast roast us on Twitter. <laughs> yes, where Anna Marie will check it. Right? No, Jake will check it. A little bit of both. I'm the I'm the Twitter guy. You're the Instagram guy. Yeah. Perfect. All right. So my sources for Japanese yokai is yokai.com, um, which is like a website that's very cool, made by Matthew Meyer, who's a folklorist, and he, um writes descriptions about all these different yokai and there's like hundreds of different yokai um and he writes a description and he has like the habitat and like background information and he also i think it's his own artwork that he's like painting or drawing the uh, depictions of them so that's pretty cool obviously i used wikipedia and then an article by michael dan foster on about japan.com um, or about japan.japansociety.org. Okay, so yokai. Yokai are ghosts, phantoms, or strange apparitions. They are a class of supernatural monsters, spirits, and demons in Japanese folklore. Uh, and the word yokai um, is made up of a combination of characters yo, meaning attractive, bewitching calamity, and kai, meaning mystery and wonder. Wow, what a what a bunch of words just put together, yeah. and I'm trying to like imagine what all of those things together could look like. Is this like Death Note? You know, I've never watched Death Note, but if it relates to it, um, I, it could. I don't know, but you tell me. You, you feel free to add Death Note information in here. Um. Okay, so this word is generally just like a catch-all for everything spooky. Um, And yokai.com, they describe yokai as, um, quote, sometimes translated as monster, demon, spirit, or goblin, but it can encompass all of that and more. The word yokai also includes ghosts, gods, or kami, 
Transformed Humans and Animals, Bake Mono, Spirit Possession, Tsukimono, Urban Legends, and Other Strange Phenomena. It's a broad and vague term, and nothing exists in the English language that quite describes it. Okay, so yokai are also sometimes called ayakashi, mononoke, or mamono. And I saw on um, Letterboxd, Anna-Marie, that you have not seen Princess Mononoke. Is that correct? That's correct. Jake, have you seen that? No. Okay, well, I highly recommend it. I weirdly have two copies of the DVD, so maybe mm. I'll mail you one and you can wipe it down. <laughs> so interestingly, I think that, I think that um, Liam from Cinepunks suggested that we cover princess conspiracy theories surrounding or not conspiracy theories, but just like weird interpretive theories around princess Mononoke. And he wanted to come on and talk about it. All right. Well, I'm not really getting into that so much, but I'm just going to describe what Mononoke means really fast. And that would be awesome to have him on for that. Okay. So Mononoke, what that means, um, they are vengeful spirits, dead spirits, live spirits, or just a general term for spirits in Japanese classical literature and folk religion. Uh, and they're said to do things like possess individuals and make them suffer, cause disease, or even cause death. Um, so I know you guys haven't seen this movie, but Princess Mononoke came out in 1997, and it was a Hayao Miyazaki film. And he also did... Um, I know that name. Yeah, he also did Spirited Away. Yes, okay. um, My my friend Totoro or whatever it's called Mm -hmm. um Howl's Moving Castle you probably any listener out there has probably heard of or seen one of these movies I have seen those I will say yes they're super good this movie very good and I have two copies (laughs) 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 so the main plot super fast this is just a quick little you know, set up for you. Um, it's about Ashitaka, the prince of a disappearing people who was cursed by a demonized boar named Nago. The boar beca- became a demon when he was shot by a gun and left a ball of iron within his flesh. The iron slowly began corrupting him, and when coupled with his rage and fear of death, Nago became a demon god and rampaged along the countryside until arriving after some time in Ashitaka's village. So, Ashitaka journeys west to find a cure because he becomes infected with this curse um, and he meets San, a human woman who fights alongside wolves to protect the forest and Lady Aboshi who wants to destroy and take the forest, which the forest itself is depicted by a forest spirit, which is like this really cool looking um, deer creature. But yeah, you can see like the Mononoke part is like he was cursed and so the curse is like spread i gotcha all right so yokai can be good or bad but in most cases they reside in that gray area between the two not necessarily good or bad um they can bring good luck and they can also bring bad luck depending on what their motives are um but most of them are just kind of in that weird gray area so yokai most often have animal features but There are some that appear to be mostly human or even to look like inanimate objects. Um, And sometimes they have no discernible shape at all. Um, There are ways to recognize, there are ways to categorize yokai based on their quote, true form. Um, For example, like human, animal, natural phenomenon, et cetera, depending on the source of the mutation. So that could be like spiritual related, material related, um, reincarnation or next world related. Um, They're also categorized based on external appearance. So are they a human, 
an artifact, a structure, a building, etc. But um, I wanted to tell you about the traditional Japanese folklorist's way to classify yokai is by location or phenomenon associated with their manifestation. As this is um, as indexed by this book called Sogo Nihon Minzoku Goi, which means a complete dictionary of Japanese folklore. So they're categorized by mountains, paths, trees, water, sea, snow, sound, and animals, real or imaginary. So that's like where they come from and originate from. You may be wondering what kind of abilities these creatures have, and they, they do have supernatural abilities. Um, most of them are able to do shape-shifting. Shape-shifting? Not shape. Shape-shifting. Um, <laughs> that's the most common ability that they have. Oh, shit, am I able to do shape-shifting? Shape-shifting. Jason. <laughs> All right, so... Um, you guys ready? <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Okay, so the origin of yokai. Um, when I was looking at yokai.com, it says that the, the Japanese folklore is an amalgamation of different traditions with foundation in the folk religions of isolated tribes living on the Japanese isles, um, which were then modified over time as they become more became more of a unified culture across Japan. Um, and they were also modified by the introduction of Shinto, the religion of Shinto, and later Buddhism, um, and, uh, and incorporating elements of Chinese and Indian folklore. So according to Wikipedia, Japanese folklorists and historians explain yokai as the personification of natural phenomena. So whether that's like animals or there's some that are just like inexplainable forces um, or even like a tree could be one. Uh, so the oldest recorded histories of Japan that go back to the 8th century contain creation myths, legendary prehistory of Japan, and various documents, document, and various documentations of legends and folklore of gods, demons, and other supernatural creatures. Um, generally, the older the time period, the greater the amount of the the greater the amount of phenomena that were deemed supernatural in character or cause, which I thought was an interesting way of explaining, like how much they ex how much they relayed the um the cause or the the reason behind something as being more supernatural P there's been different um approaches to the yokai and beliefs around them and their purpose and culture over history and i'm, I'm really briefly going to go in the history and i'm going to try to make that part fast okay <laughs> so japanese animism um that's the belief that objects places and creatures all possess a distinct spiritual essence um all things perceived as animated all things are perceived as animated and alive such as rocks weather systems human handiwork even words or i mean obviously animals um so spirit-like entities were called, among other things, mononoke, um, were believed to reside in all things. So there's sp peaceful spirits, like called nigi mitama, which bring good fortune, like bountiful harvests. And there's violent spirits called ara mitama, which bring ill fortune, like illness and natural disasters. Mm -hmm. And there are rituals for quelling evil spirits into peaceful spirits, um, for preventing misfortune, and for alleviating fear from events. Or unexplained circumstances. So the Ara Mitama, the malevolent spirits um, that fail to become deities because of lack of veneration or because they lose their divinity because of loss of worshippers, can become yokai. 
history. So let's start in ancient history. Um, there was a period of abundant literature and folk tales mentioning and explaining yokai. Um, there was ancient reports called fudoki, which described ancient legends such as the legend of the oni and the orochi. So the oni is an ogre, troll, or hulking figure with one or more horns growing out of its head. Um, they have like the red face and they, the red, sometimes they're blue or green colored, but they mostly come up with like a red face. Um, they wear loincloths of a tiger pelt and they carry an iron, an iron club that is spiked and it's a war-handed, it's a two-handed war club. Um, and they're very popular in Japanese art, literature, and theater, and they often appear as stock villains in fairy tales even today. So you may have even seen like that, that face of an oni. Um, it's very common as like kind of just a general ogre. And that led me to this very interesting um, yokai that I never like conceived of. It's so cool. It's called Hayaki Yagyo. And that was butchering it. Um, and it's that means, quote, night parade of 100 demons. Um, so that's basically a horde of countless so oni. Metal. I know, right? <laughs> um, it's a horde of countless oni, either in orderly procession or in a riot. So it's kind of similar to the term pandemonium. But isn't that so cool? That's a yokai. Interesting. Okay. So the Orochi... Um, that I was talking about. Um, the other one that goes back to ancient times is the Yamato no Orochi, which is a legendary eight-headed and eight-tailed dragon serpent um, that was originally a local god, but then turned into a yokai, which was then killed by this kami holy spirit called Susanu. So if you ever learn anything about, if you've ever played the game Okami, Susanu comes up a lot. Wait, what What game? I've never heard of this game Yeah, what before. is that? You guys don't... Okay, so for the PlayStation 1 or 2, there's a game called Okami, which originally was going to be my topic. Um, but it's just so encompassing, and I just felt like there were so many stories, and I, I don't know why I chose this other thing that happened to be very complicated as well. But anyways, Okami is a game where you play as Amaterasu, um, which is a wolf that doesn't remember who he is, but he's basically a god. And you're going around and you like have to paint all these symbols and you're interacting with different spirits. It's very fun, but then I tried to play it again. Because um, the first time I played it was like middle school. I tried to play it again and I think, I, I don't know, maybe I've just moved on from those type of games. But it's very interesting because it's a lot of like history hmm. involved in it. Okay, so it's a video game. Yes. Gotcha. And you That's play what we've established. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> well, no. Well, when you said game, for some reason, the first thing I thought of was like a board game. Oh, that so. would be fun, though. No, it's kind of cool because you get to paint all these like symbols and they like cause you to be able to do different powers that this sun god Amaterasu has. That's cool. Okay. So moving to post-classical history, which is like medieval Japan, um, this is where we start to see visual depictions of yokai. All those stories I told you before, at that point, they were just kind of written. But now we're seeing um, the emergence of um, paintings and drawings. Um, and now they're more the subjects of entertainment and tales. Um, and there's more tales of like people exterminating yokai those are becoming more popular. So it's like hero story type things of like, how do you overcome this terrible thing? Um, and there's more of an emphasis on these stories 
resulting in superior human society over the yokai, over nature. Mm-hmm. So then moving on to the modern history, this is where like there's a big boom in the Edo period, which is like 1600 to 1800. Um, yokais began to be included in encyclopedias. People were trying to organize them. That's where they get these super long lists where people are classifying, compartmentalizing the world, um, listing out um, yokai in the same encyclopedias where animals that really live, like dogs and cats and insects or whatever, are in these same super long encyclopedias. Um, and they start to become the characters in dramas, pictures, books, and even manga. So we start to see manga in the Edo period too. Um, Wait, and be- manga like like comic books in yes. the 1800s? The 1600s. That's really I cool. Know. And maybe manga, the definition has changed to now it means like comic books, but back then it was like these stories with these pictures and stuff. So I guess that is a comic oh, book. Interesting. Yeah. I was just thinking about Shonen Jump. Um, yeah, so we start to see these mangas coming out. Um, yo- uh, yokai start to become these dramatic characters, her- characters who are not just scary, but they're, they can be silly and fun and comical. And they're often used in parodies. And this time period, people really, really love yokai. So there's a boom and new ones being created. So we don't just have those ancient ones now. Now we have people making new ones up. Oh, so like as things develop, like as society develops, there could maybe now be one for like computers? Oh, I didn't see a computer one, but they do have one that I saw that was like a wall. And they had another one that was um, a sandal, an animated sandal. I didn't look into those ones though. Um, But yeah, things that they're using in like more modern society not just like nature and stuff okay all right so only two more periods i'm going to tell you about the meiji period i'm I'm butchering that um which leads up it's between the edo period and 1912 i guess that's before world war one i think um that's a notable time for like applying scientific rationalization to the yokai um, which was led by Inoyu Enryo, um, who was a philosopher, a Buddhist priest, and an educator. And he wanted Japan to modernize and transcend beyond the superstitious and, quote, errant beliefs of the yokai. So yokai fell out of popularity for like a hundred-ish years mm-hmm. until after World War II, when the Showa period started. Um, yokai were introduced into various media um, well-known among people, and yokai are spoken about all the time in various legends and forms, various urban legends. Um, So that's where we start to see fictional yokai in scary school stories and urban legends. There's another boom of people making new yokai. Um, And we start to see more mangas being produced. Um, There's an artist, Shigeru Mizuki, who reintroduced them to, with his comic series, and I don't know how to pronounce this. It's just Gegege no Kitaru, which um, led to like the second explosion of interest. And we see like video games now, there's anime, um, there's more mangas. And so this is where one like pretty prominent, and you may have even heard of this before the slit mouthed woman. That sounds legend. familiar, but I could definitely use a. I'm uh, all ears. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Listen to this. Okay, so. Kuchisake Ona is a slip-mouthed woman. She's a malevolent figure in Japanese urban legends and folklore. She's a malicious spirit 
of a woman, she partially covers her face with a mask or other items, and she carries some sort of sharp object with her. And then what she does is she um, approaches people and asks pot- pot- she asks potential victims if they think she's attractive. If they say no, she kills them with a weapon. If they say yes, she reveals that the corners of her mouth are slit from ear to ear. So she's got like a Joker thing going on. Whoa. Oh my gosh. So after she reveals this, she asks again, do you think I'm attractive? If you say no, she kills you. If you say yes, then she will cut the corners of your mouth to match hers. Oh. Whew. That is... Oh, I don't like that. Isn't that so, so creepy? So, so yeah, that's super creepy. Like, can you just say I refuse the premise of this question? There's like this whole thing that you can look up. There's a whole Wikipedia page that says like, how do you defeat this? And it has like a flow chart for answering the questions. It's very, <laughs> it's, yeah, you should check it out. But if, apparently if you say like, you look okay, or like you look moderately attractive, then you can get away because it gets confused. Ooh. All right, so. This is where I want to get into some of the um, my favorite ones. I don't know if I have time to get through all of them. Um, if you look in the drive, and I am, I'm going to up, definitely upload some of these to the Instagram. Um, this is the reason, especially this first one, that I wanted to tell you about these. And it was just so interesting looking at the background information <laughs> about them. So start with number one, Sharime. Oh, man, wow. that is... <laughs> Ooh, buddy. <laughs> So you're looking at Shirime's picture right now? Yes. Oh, yeah. Perfect. So Shirima, Shirime is a yokai with an eye in the place of his anus. <laughs> yeah, that's yes. what we're looking at. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you want to know what, what Shirime does, what he likes to do? What does he like to do? <laughs> okay. So Shirime, according to yokai.com, Shirime approaches travelers on the road late at night, looking like a man wearing a kimono. That's totally normal, right? Yeah. Once it has their attention, it asks them if they have a moment to spare. Like, hey, you have a moment to listen to this? Before you can answer, the Shirime drops its kimono to the ground, bends over, spreading its butt cheeks, and revealing the giant shiny eye located inside of its butthole. <laughs> <laughs> what is the purpose of that? It just enjoys scaring people. It's not harmful. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's really well... funny. I dig that one. <laughs> yeah, that one's pretty funny. Uh... <laughs> Wow. I'm sure you're looking at the person in the picture. It's just like, excuse me. I don't like like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I can't stop looking at the eye. (laughs) Mesmerized. (laughs) All right. Let's go to um, Juan Yudo. I'm going to skip over Nupepo for time's sake. So this next one is Juan Yudo, which literally means wheel monk. Um, (laughs) Also known as fire wheel or soul taker. So it takes the the form of a burning ox cart wheel bearing the tormented face of a man in the middle. So if you look in that picture, it's like the wheel of an old cart, like a wooden wheel. And inside it's like this really crazed looking face and the wheels on fire. Yep. Oh, yeah. So this just kind of like floats around and rolls around. And his head is like impaled by all the spokes. Yes. I would not want to see that, like walking down a nice path. I mean, it looks like a really nice place to go for a little walk, and then all of a sudden, this tortured wheel on fire comes barreling down. Barreling down. <laughs> yeah, I'd be worried he's going to light the, the woods on fire. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> so he is believed to be um, a conde- the condemned soul of a tyrannical daimyo, which is a feudal lord of Japan. Um, so this one, I think, is more of one of those older stories or an older um uh what's my top oh my god what are they called yokai yokai i was gonna say kyaimyo like backwards okay (laughs) here we go okay so i believe he's like an older yokai because it's like has to do with some like old like you know an ox cart feudal japan that type of thing Mm -hmm. um he's known for having his victims dragged behind an ox cart like this feudal lord so um he was condemned to live as like the head on this weird wheel um he guards the gates of hell wandering back and forth along the road between this world and the underworld trying to scare townsfolk and steal souls of those who get too close to him and then he will drag them back to hell with him that's also horrifying very nice (laughs) okay Ushi Oni. Look at the next picture, number four. That's creepy. <laughs> oh, oh goodness. <sighs> wow. Okay, so Ushi Oni is an ox demon with many variations and origins. It is a monster with a horned bovine head that oh, lives near the water. So you have to go to the next one. There's two with number four. Oh, I gotcha. Because Ushi Oni has like a sidekick, or like they have has like a partner it teams up with. That's yeah. the other one. All right. Okay, so uh, Ushi Oni is an ox demon with many variations and origins. It's a monster with a horned, like bovine ox type head, um, and it most it's most often depicted with six legs, like a spider. But I think spiders have eight legs, so I'm not sure why that's. It has six. Um, it has long singular claws. As you can see, they're kind of just like spears at the end. They look really creepy and there's like a lot of joints. Um, and they can also have the body of a cat or even a kimono clad human. Um, they are known to be cruel and savage. They breathe toxic poison and they like to eat humans. They hunt their prey by roaming the coasts um, and coastal towns and they inflict curses and bring diseases. And they like to pair up with their good buddy, if you go to the picture with the snake lady. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. what I was freaked out about. Yeah. That is Nure Ona. Or wait. That's yeah, that's Nure Ona, um, who is similar to Iso Ona. Both of them pair up with the um Ushi Oni. So Nure Ona means wet woman, resembles a reptilian creature with the head of a woman and the body of a snake. Man. <laughs> and then Iso Ona is similar to to Nure Ona, except it just looks like a regular woman. Um, but similar, it's kind of like a like a, a siren um, luring men, um, luring fishermen and travelers to the you know dangerous waters to feed on them. And I think Iso Ona is also like a vampire type creature, uh, but no serpentine features. Just looks like a woman. All right, here we go. Um, I think I'm going to just do two more. So this one is my other favorite. Go go to go to Casa Obake. I'm very intrigued by oh wow, that moves. Yes. So that's Casa Obake, <laughs> which is basically an umbrella with an eye <laughs> and has one leg instead of where the umbrella handle should be. So it, like it looks a, like 
a closed umbrella, but like at the top of the fate, like top of the umbrella, there's like just a one big old eye. And sometimes it's depicted with like a really creepy long tongue coming out. Yeah, I see that. Now, is the leg, does it look like a human leg? Yes. Oh. This is very like Nightmare Before Christmas looking. Right? So spooky. So this one's different than the other ones I showed you because it's an inanimate object. Um, And it's thought to be um, what's called a Tsukumogami. Tsukumogami. Um, which is a tool that acquired a kami or a spirit. Um, there's an idea that tools used in hum- human life for years become older, and over time they start to develop a sense of self and have the ability to become apparitions. So that's kind of the thought behind why, why this creature may have become a yokai. Um, he really frequently appears in legends and caricatures, but there's never been eyewitness um stories or folklore about him with those other yokai with many yokai that i've told you about already it it might be like a myth or like a legend that this someone has seen this thing or that someone's being captured by it but this guy just kind of shows up in the stories so there's no like (laughs) sightings of this creature this creepy um umbrella here well maybe which i think is a good thing yes i mean just keep an eye on your umbrellas Yes. But weirdly enough, this guy goes back to the Edo period, which is like 1600s, um, which is also a time that a lot of um, yokai were created by people for the purposes of like literature and stuff. So it's possible that he may have been like created. Um, What's super interesting is he's really popular now in anime, manga and films. And he's also associated with haunted houses. So if you go to a haunted house like for fun in japan you may see this little dude (laughs) that would probably like this would scare me more than i think a lot of uh stuff we see in haunted houses here in the u.s he's super creepy (laughs) all right do you think we have time for just one more totally yeah i think so cool would you rather learn about the japanese badger or the nightmare eater <laughs> they both look good what, what's your favorite uh, let's do the nightmare eater just because i think it's kind of let's do the nightmare eater okay so the last one i will be telling you about is the baku baku is a supernatural being said to devour dreams and nightmares That's nice. legend says baku were created by the spare pieces left over when the gods finished creating all other animals that's pretty funny (laughs) so that's why um and there's variations on this but that's why they're known to be made up of a bunch of different parts like one one um source i had said had the body of a bear head of an elephant eyes of a rhino tail of an ox legs of a tiger and this goes back to chinese folklore but became familiar to japan in about the 14th century um, and I feel like these are these are really good little creatures. You want them on your side because they're guardian spirits and they watch over and protect humans. They feed on bad dreams of humans and they scare away evil spirits, even evil yokai. Nice. Mm. I want one as a pet. Right? Our apartment they, doesn't allow dogs, but maybe they'd allow this. Well, maybe you can get a little statue. I did read somewhere that people put little statues of them next to their like bedside. 
It's like, you know, it's like kind of like a dream catcher type situation. I guess better than keeping that um umbrella spirit. in your closet. <laughs> in your closet. <laughs> Um, so because they're, they are known for like protecting against evil, they are known to bring health and good luck because that's what remains if you get rid of the evil stuff. Um, so this is a quote, a person who wakes from a bad dream can call, can call out to Baku. A child having a nightmare in Japan will wake up and repeat three times, Baku-san, come eat my dream. Baku will come into the child's room and devour the dream, allowing the child to go back to sleep. However, you can only use this sparingly because if he remains hungry after eating a nightmare, he may also devour your hopes and desires <laughs> and leaving the person with an empty life. Oh, Jeez. wow. That took a turn. Yeah, I know, right? I thought he <laughs> was going to be, be evil, scared. but it sounds like he's good. I would be more scared to call him than to just have nightmares. Yeah. Seriously. All right. Well, that those are my favorite yokai. Thanks for sticking with this long thing. Yeah, I love those. <laughs> I especially love the um, Shirimi. Is that what? Shirime, I think. Shirime. Yeah. And I highly recommend, if this interests any of our listeners or even you guys, I highly recommend that you just kind of Google yokai or even go to yokai.com. It's like an interesting encyclopedia list where you can just kind of look through. And they have a list of like habitat, like where do they live? Like wh- what are the, what's the origins of this yokai story? There's a cute little picture, so much information. And you might find some really, really strange ones. And I, I guarantee you, I did not even scratch the surface. There's like hundreds and hundreds of these dudes. Yeah, I'm there. I'm there already. I'm ready <laughs> to get into it. Awesome. So cool. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Thanks. Sure. I was inspired by Okami and Spirited Away. Not Spirited Away. Actually, kind of, but no. Okami mostly. Awesome. Yeah. Now I'm just gonna... I know what I'm doing for the rest of quarantine. Thanks for listening to Weird, Obscure, and Possibly Unsafe. If you have any weird stories of your own that you would like us to read on the podcast... Please send those along to weirdobscurepodcast at gmail.com. And in case you didn't know, our podcast is on the podcasting network Cinepunks. You can find a whole lot of information um, about other podcasts on the network at cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X.com. You can find us on Twitter at weirdobscurepod. You can also find us on Instagram at Weird Obscure Podcast. And last but not least, thanks, Matt Baker, for the sick artwork. Woo. Thanks, Matt. See you guys in a fortnight. That's the way the news goes. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. 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 Oh, my gosh.